So what happens in organizations when there's not a leader with an elevate others mindset? You see it quite a bit. Leaders in their attempt to organize their team or make sense of their world, they put people in boxes and they, they use labels as a shortcut to assembling a team. If you're gonna transform and grow and keep up, you can't have everybody in a box. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey, Lead the Team. Welcome back to another great episode. Today, I have for you Jim Joseph, who is the U.S. CEO of Ketchum. Now, if you're not, not familiar with Ketchum, they are a global public relations firm founded way back in 1923. They won the 2023 Agency of the Year Award from Provoke and PR Week deemed them the most awarded PR agency and the best place to work or one of the best places to work. Now, back to Jim. He's also an award-winning author of multiple books, including The Conscious Marketer, Inspiring a Deeper and More Conscious Brand Experience, Out and About Dad, a personal memoir from his journey as a father with all its twists, turns, and a few twirls, which Book Authority happened to award it one of the best fatherhood books of all time, and the, the Experience Effect series. So multiple books in this, engaging your customers with a consistent and memorable brand experience. And by the way, he has an undergraduate degree from Cornell and an MBA from Columbia and serves also as an adjunct professor at NYU. Holy smokes. Jim, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Ah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So great to be here. Man, so there are so many angles to take here, but let's <laughs> start with, I mean, my goodness, we'll start with mentoring. Okay. When you think of your favorite mentor, what piece of advice or most memorable piece of advice did they give you that's been helpful? Oh, gave me advice. This was years ago my first job out of grad school at Johnson and Johnson. And to this uh -huh. day, one of my favorite managers, favorite leaders, favorite mentors. And she said to me, Jim, you have a tendency to look at people for what you want them to be, not necessarily for who they are, meaning skill sets, talents, ability to get things done. Hmm. And I remember saying to her is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because <laughs> it sounds yeah. like it could be a little bad. It sounds yeah. like it could be a little good. And, and she actually said, it's both. Hmm. You know, take it for you're elevating them, helping them grow, helping them expand, but be realistic about what is in their ability. And I have used hmm. that over and over and over again, particularly at a time when I'm trying to lead an organization through a lot of change. Hmm. You know, lift them up, guide them, help them grow, but also be realistic about what they can accomplish. Yeah. So I can see that one, you don't want to sugarcoat the possibilities too much through rose, rose colored glasses, but also what a huge leadery capability to be able to see a person's capacity or possibility and then set a vision for what's possible. Elevate them. Right. Right. I mean, is it, I mean, to me, that's a hugely positive trait in a leader in some, you know, for so many ways, because 
a lot of leaders run around without a vision for their own career, for, for the possibilities for other people and for the organization. If that's your natural tendency, my gosh. And you can probably fortify that with having great leaders around you, right? To kind of sometimes right. ground the vision. Right. Trickle it through the organization, have that be all about growth and and learning and development and and also reaching reaching your potential, but knowing when that's you know that that's okay. You've reached it and, and that's what you're gonna do yeah. now. So deep diving into that, when's the time in your career where you're like, man, that trait came in handy? Oh, a few times. I I have kind of become a bit of a of a builder and a fixer of of organizations. Mm-hmm. I think it stemmed from when I I did have that first job at Johnson and Johnson in marketing. I did a lot of new product development where you're building something uh, or taking an existing product and needing to fix it. I kind of sort of built my career around that, and mm-hmm. I've been in a number of situations at agencies where we've had to take relatively traditional capabilities that had been in place for a very long time and transform the agency and the agency teams mm-hmm. to do new skill sets, new new capabilities, more integrated marketing. And the only way that happens is by setting a really strong vision for you, what, what you want that to be, you know, mapping out a, the road to get there and then letting everybody see themselves in that plan. Like this is where you fit into that plan. And this is your... This is your potential. And in some cases, it, it isn't what they're doing now, but as a leader, you can see it. In some cases, it is, and you just need to help elevate them. And then, you know, honestly, in some cases, maybe it isn't. They're already at their capacity. So anytime I've had to lead through major change, major transformation, a re-engineering of, of a firm, I've had to sort of lean on that. Yeah, such a good thing. And so I'm trying to imagine the antithesis of this. So what happens in organizations when there's not a leader with an elevate others mindset? Actually, you see it quite a bit where leaders in their attempt to organize their team or make sense of their world, they put people in boxes. Oh, this person's good at this. And this person's an expert Mm. at that. And this person's not good at this. So we're not going to put them there. And they they use labels, quite honestly, as a shortcut to assembling a team. I I myself have been mm-hmm. a bit of a victim of that a few times in my career where mm-hmm. I felt labeled or typecast as, well, that's what Jim's really creative. He's really creative. Well, okay, maybe, maybe Jim is really creative, but that doesn't mean Jim's not also analytical and conceptual and and able to make tough decisions. So you see it a lot where where yeah. where leaders try to simplify their world and box everybody in. And those boxes can be really limiting and for the person as well as for the organization. Because if you're going to transform and grow and keep up, you can't have everybody in a box because they're just going to sit in their box. Man, that's such good advice. And there are, I mean, ever I'll, I myself included, when I worked in, in organizations, sometimes I felt pigeonholed. It's like Ben's the guy who does this kind of stuff. Early in my career, Somehow I was an industrial engineer, although I was not trying to do that. And uh, <laughs> I was like the costing person using Excel. And yeah. then I was really good at that kind of stuff. And yeah, I was pretty good at it. I didn't really enjoy it that much. And it was hard to find that initial step up to move into something else because there wasn't really a director of doing analytical stuff at our organization. So I just you know stayed in the same role. Right. Eventually yeah. I left. You know, eventually I, I moved on. So 
I'm trying to think about this. So you here you are as CEO, multiple thousands of employees. It seems like this perspective seems good on paper, but then you're like, man, I've got all these people. I need to understand what their their capacity is, what their what is the next level. And what you're talking about seems a lot more expansive than just, hey, sit down and do an annual review with somebody and try to identify their next step. When you try to amplify this across an organization to elevate people, to see the bigger possibilities for them in their career and what they can contribute, how do you do that? It gets real complex real fast. And <laughs> you have to realize that you you don't do it alone. There's no hmm. way that one person can implement that through an entire organization. But you have to have this infrastructure in place and not hierarchy for hierarchy's sake, but you have to have a leadership infrastructure in place that takes care of the people that are in each of the groups. So mm. I would instill that in my folks who are leading their parts of the organization, who then instill it in their folks who are leading their parts of that part of the organization. And you you make that part of the part of the culture. It's imperfect for sure. Do we have pockets where we do it really well? Absolutely. Do we have pockets where we don't do it well enough? Absolutely. It's an imperfect science. It's probably one of those things that's a goal that you never quite actually get to, but it's a constant strive towards it. And it's a it's a mentality as much as anything. It's just literally a, a way of being that dictates your behaviors, dictates your perspectives on people, dictates how you how you staff and train and and recruit. I love it. So I'm assuming do you talk about it as the elevation mindset or how do you or like what what vernacular seems to resonate most with the uh, with the team? We talk a lot about it in terms of growth. Growth. So, okay. you yep. know, as an as an agency and as a business, you know, we're constantly striving for growth. If you're not growing, there's no such thing as staying still. If you're not growing, you're you're going backwards. So we talk about growth of the agency and growth of our people, and you know, growth of our people in their career and in their skill sets and in their contributions to the to the agency. And what we talk all the time about what you might be doing right now might not be what you're doing tomorrow or next year or the year after. And what is it that you want to be doing? What do you want to do? And for a lot of folks, they have a very strong sense of self and a very strong sense of where they want to end up, some love rate where they are. But a lot of people don't have a strong sense of self and they don't necessarily have a sense of their own potential, particularly in the context of the organization. So to me, that's yeah. where the leader comes in and pushes a little bit like, hey, I think you'd be great at this. And I've had many people say, well, yeah, I would be. And then I've had a lot of people who say, really? You think so? <laughs> and it, it, it amazed, this just happened mm -hmm. last week, actually. I was talking to a leader about their future and what they want to do. And I, in my mind, I had a somewhat lofty sense of where I wanted them to go. Again, in the context of the organization, in the context of what I know about their skill sets. And they had a very different response to my question than I thought they would. It was actually much smaller and more discreet mm. and and less expansive. And I literally said, well, I'd like I'd like to see your impact a little broader than that. I'd love to see, you know, your role more expansive. And I saw them kind of open up, but they wouldn't mm. have gotten there on their own. They wouldn't they wouldn't have gotten so, there. So that, good. Yep. Good. 
that and that could be a case where I'm not seeing I'm seeing people for who I want them to be, not who they are, or it it plays into what your mentor said. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But 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 it's so huge. You're applying to your business, you're applying to your teams, you're applying to your employees. And I think you hit the nail on the head for myself included earlier in my career. I didn't see the possibilities. I felt like I wanted to make more money. I felt right. like I wanted to be an executive of some sort, but I had no idea of the how or the steps or, and there really wasn't someone telling me and showing me what was possible. And I just ended up in a big heap of frustration. Right. And I mean, to have, I'm trying to imagine if the CEO at the time would have sat me down and said, Ben, have you thought about these other things? You could be good at this. You know, I've seen you do well here. Have you, I mean, it would have blown my mind. And it, I mean, who knows? It, it would have been huge. And, and, and it probably would have stayed at the organization. And by the way, that's a great way to retain talent is you don't even have to promote people, but just talk to them about promotion because they want to know someone's thinking about them. Well, I always feel like, and I felt this way, I think in every organization I've been at, if you have the the right kind of business and you think about teams the right kind of way and you're flexible in your thinking, hmm. no one should ever have to leave. Now, maybe they leave for money. Maybe they leave to get promoted faster. Maybe they leave because they want a career change, mm-hmm. like a drastic career change. But if it's simply for growth, no one should ever have to leave. You want to try something different here? Great. You want to you want to expand your skill set over there? Awesome. You want to work on a different piece? Great. You should do that here rather than leave to go do that someplace else. I've always mm-hmm. felt that way. But that comes with lots of open dialogue, people willing to share. It doesn't solve every retention issue, but it it, it certainly I think can often solve the high performers. You know, because they want to grow, they want to yes. move, they want to explore. And that is the power of having a growth mindset as a leader and then instilling that in your organization. Reduce your turnover. You're far more creative and you probably have a much more excited and engaged organization overall. Mic drop moment or <laughs> jump. All right. So let's, I, I mean, Jim, I could, I could talk to you about this for another hour, but I'm, they'll be missing out on some other questions. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> When you look at Jim's LinkedIn profile, he's been in a lot of organizations, a lot of marquee organizations, steadily rising. But for some reason, you've been able to write multiple books and not always on the same topic. And so I'll say you're a a bit of a personal branding connoisseur for what you've been able to create for yourself. What's been the power of personal branding for your career? I think the the power of self-fulfillment. I I love hmm. this craft, the craft of marketing, the craft of strategy and creativity and brands. I loved it when I did the work all day long. I loved the work. I miss it hmm. actually in some ways, although I still do quite a bit of it. And I love the craft of leadership, of helping other people do that work. Hmm. And when people when people say to me, how how on earth do you you know do your day job write books teach i write a blog almost every day to yep. me it's all the same thing it's all about the craft and staying on top of the craft staying aware of what's going on in the world what other brands are doing what other organizations are doing 
giving back to the next generation and actually listening to their point of view. Mm. You know, that old cliche, uh, I learn more from them than they do from me. Well, it's kind of true. You know, I ask probing questions. We analyze marketing campaigns. We IDA mm-hmm. and I hear their perspective as, you know, as it comes from their generation, as opposed to mine, keeps me fresh, keeps me, you know, out of my own box, helps me be much more self-fulfilling. That for me is the power of, of personal branding. And at its core, personal branding really is about behaving like a brand, you know, knowing who mm-hmm. you are, being consistent about who you are, treating people the way you, you know, want them to think of you. And having goals and aspirations and 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 growing. I mean, that's what it is. Um, so for me, it's all about self-fulfillment. I love that. And you can tell from your writing style that you get a lot of joy from it. Love it. Um, and and I enjoyed looking back through some of your blogs and your posts. And um, I love your voice, but I appreciate your regularity and consistency. Mm. Because ultimately, that's how you get better. It's not writing one book. It's writing every day. It's blogging or frequently and, right. and doing that. And I, and I was thinking about it. Some of what you said too reminds me about caloric intake and in that <laughs> if you're listening and we're reading the news, which a lot of people do all day, but they're not really, people don't process it. Mm. Like you're not the exercise and caloric intake, right? You're burning, you, you're taking calories, you burn calories, you get stronger, you develop. And this regularity of, of thought leadership. And like, I like what you said, it kept you fresh. It makes you listen with intention to the world around you because you're like, Hey, I'm thinking about how I might include this in an article or a post on LinkedIn or a new book idea. And I just thought it was really cool because it's, Yes, you probably don't have a lot of time to do it, but if you're if you're reviewing, thinking about the world, and you're processing information, and in the and the, in the intake every day, with the intent of doing something with it, it just makes you think of it completely differently. Right. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And in my NYU class, I start out every class meets once a week. Each student has selected something they saw that week in the marketplace piece of advertising, a social post, an article they read, a retail display, whatever it is. They pick one thing that they saw, had some sort of an interest in, and and have to explain to the class why they picked it. And it's all about that learning. And because none of us can supply marketing ideas all day long unto ourselves. We have to do it with teams. We do it by taking a look at what's going on around the world, by call it uh, search and reapply. Like that's kind of cool. How could I apply that to my brand and make it unique to my brand? So the more you get into that discipline of being, some people might call it curious, just really curious about the craft and what's going on. It makes you better. It, it makes you more open-minded. So let's zoom it back to something that recently you you wrote about. So although our, our episodes are intended to be legacy and evergreen forever, we'll kind of date this one a little bit because Jimmy Buffett just passed away, the legend. You take to your blog immediately and you start talking about the brand of Jimmy Buffett and just walk us through how you thought about or how you, how you thought about or think about the brand of Jimmy and kind of applying this lens because everyone around the world is reading about Jimmy Buffett. You read it 
and you do something with it. Mm. I think he's a brand. Uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And while he started out in in music and writing music and and performing it, he was able to take a song and song lyrics and turn it into a kind of a lifestyle concept and then turn it into a product, whether that was a restaurant or a hotel, and then write more songs that did the same thing to reinforce the concept and then come out with more products that lived to that concept and then ended up through the years with an incredible portfolio of products that are all serving that lifestyle brand, whether it's a t-shirt or a drink or a cheeseburger or a a hotel or a rental property even. So that's the Hallmark brand. He even branded his, his fans, parrot heads. I mean, he had, (laughs) he had a name that they generated or he did. It doesn't matter. That's all part of the brand experience and how you show that you're engaged with not Jimmy Buffett, you're engaged with the brand Jimmy Buffett. Because we can all learn a lot from Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Oh man. I thought that was cool. See a great example of sorry sorry again. Yep. Lady Gaga's done that in many ways with Mm, her with her brand. But I think the proliferation of products in his brand is what's really incredibly impressive. All based on that concept. All based on land shark beer. I believe. Yeah. Uh, they said cheeseburger in paradise, cheeseburgers. The Margaritaville brand has been used on every everything that moves, I think. Right. Restaurants, yeah. resorts, everything. Yeah. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. I'd like to take it in the direction of your memoir. Mm -hmm. You're a relatively young guy and you are banging out a memoir already. (laughs) So, I mean, usually a memoir is like at least, you know, that's the cherry on top. Uh, And you decide, well, I've done the business book thing. Probably more to come on that, I'm sure. But hey, I, I I feel compelled to write this memoir. What what was at the heart of it? So I was a single gay divorced dad in the early to mid '90s, at a time when not only was it not accepted, it just wasn't even acknowledged, discussed, mm-hmm. even pointed to. The, the fact of being divorced was bad enough. The fact that I was an active dad was, you know, not common. Let's just say that. The fact that I was a gay dad and single and taking care of the kids was just, I mean, I was I was an anomaly by far. And while, while I now have come to learn that there were lots of other folks like me, no one ever talked about us. We didn't know. We didn't know that anyone else existed. We were in a complete vacuum. And it was hard. I mean, there's no parenting is hard. Every parent has a rough road. I have two very good friends who just had kids, literally babies, and literally said, this is hard. I'm like, I know it is. I can really vouch for that. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. So you know, imagine going through that as a very much marginalized member of, yeah. of the community and having to fight, you know, 
all of the stereotypes and all of the like, what's a gay guy like you doing with kids? Where's mom? Why are you taking care of the kids? You know, things at school, like I couldn't have report cards sent to my home because I was the divorced dad. I mean, it was it oh. the, the discrimination, the prejudice, the isolationism was daunting. And really, the only thing that got me through it was this incredible desire to be a great dad or try to be. I don't know. I know lots of great dads. I don't know that I was a great dad, but I certainly tried to be. And I eventually met a person who's now my husband and and we did a lot of that together. So that became very sustainable. And when, when both of my kids went off to college, I actually got talked into by some friends to write it. And I, I decided to write it and then I wasn't going to publish it. And they, I got so much fury from them. (laughs) I had a responsibility to publish it. And, and really the motivation behind it was to show folks out there that they're not alone Mm. and maybe they're not a single gay dad. Maybe they're whoever they are, but if they're feeling isolated, marginalized, discriminated against there, there's a pathway through it. And Mm. I'm an example of somebody who made it through and made it through very happily and was still able to manage my career and made lots of choices about my career to make sure my kids were taken care of, but still was able to have a very rewarding career. Mm. And I, I did that to give people sort of hope, quite honestly. And I told the publisher at the time, like right after I backed out and then he talked me not into not backing out. And I said, okay, then I honestly don't want to know the numbers. I don't want to, I don't care about sales. I want one person, one person who I don't know to write a review or send me a note that says, you just changed my life. And that happened in the second day after the book came out, second day. And it also happened repeatedly from, and I assumed, look, I'll get a lot of gay dads reading the book. I did, but I also got a lot of single moms. I got Mm. a lot of divorced parents. I got a lot of of folks that don't even have kids that just related to the struggles of like balancing your career and trying to uh, accomplish what you want to do at work. I would, that I was really surprised Mm. by that uh, the human truth of what we struggle with is the same actually for everybody. It just looks a little different, but the actual Mm. human truth. And in fact, one person wrote a review. I was like blown away, said that actually that we often find human truths in generalizations, but in this book, the human truths come in the day-to-day details, the breakfast, lunches, the school trips, the holidays, those are the universal truths because we all go through that. So that was the motivation. And by far, by far, the most rewarding thing I've I've ever done, by far. Um, mm. And I remember when I was writing it and rewriting it and rewriting it, and I'm like, it just has to be, unlike a business book, which also has to be well-written, but this has to be like superbly written. Like it has to be flawless because it's so personal. And again, the first reviews were like, what a well-written book. The book was so easy to read. I couldn't put it down. I read it in one night. Like I literally, I would end one chapter and I couldn't wait to read the next one. And oh. that's a memoir, you know, that's a memoir. So I was like, okay, mission accomplished here. Well, well congratulations. Uh, wow. Um if you go back to that time when you were talking to the publisher and you're like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. What was the fear 
that initially held you back from publishing it? A lot of it was the kids. Like, it's one thing mm-hmm. to put my story out there and face all of that. But to put their story out there, that's sort of a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. The fear of it being irrelevant. Like, who's this guy think he is? Who cares? Like, who cares? What What's the big, what's the big deal? And the fear of it being, you know, a, just a big bore. <laughs> like, just not, not, a, not a read, yeah. you know? But I think that the biggest fear was impact on the kids and the, any kind of backlash. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I often think about it because at the time I was like, is this even relevant? Do I even need to write this? Like, it, mm-hmm. things changed and progressed so much at that point that is this even like a, a book that anybody's going to care about? And that's been a realization I've had over and over again. I was like, oh, yeah, it's still, mm. still relevant. And and yeah. I actually wonder sometimes if I were to release it today, if I would get a lot more backlash than I did even at the time. Because mm. I didn't get a lot of backlash. I got a little bit, you know, I like then I just learned to turn it off. But I think now in the world we live in, which is increasingly fragmented and people are feeling marginalized, it's even more relevant that we, I say this all the time, share your story, share your story. It allows people to open up about their own, to not feel alone, to feel like they've got other people around them that have had similar experiences and they did fine. And that's, that's hope. That's hope. So the book comes out, you get this great feedback. Stepping back into the corner office, have you had moments where people at work or clients have read it or have have your clients read it? Did you make a point to share it with your clients? I mean, how did how did you sort of bridge or did did it bridge into into your business? I, I didn't bridge it into the business actually, very okay. purposely because it it felt so personal and mm-hmm. it also felt like I didn't people should opt in to the story, not be forced to read the story. But I did, I did have a lot of people who read it. They saw it on social media. They saw it on Amazon or they saw a post that I would, that I would write Had a lot of people read it. And what was really interesting. And one of the most common things people said to me, and one person in particular said, I now understand why you never really seem to be stressed out. And nothing ever really seems to bother you. And no matter how many problems mount during the day, you don't ever seem to get too worried about it. I now understand that because none of it is as hard as what you went through. And I'm like, that's exactly right. (laughs) There's nothing harder than that. So yeah, I do. I mean, that's not true that I don't get stressed out. I do. We all do. And we all get feelings of being overwhelmed and like, oh my God, can I do this? And then I remember all the other things that I've been through. I'm like, oh, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I have a we'll figure it out mentality to most things because we it. will. We will. And, it's, and what a point of connection with people. You know, it's it's probably awesome when you meet a client or someone, you hire someone, they're like, hey, I read your book and I relate to it like this. And they know a little something about you. Right. And, or uh, yes, that that's incredible. And a lot of people on the surface will look at me and say, okay, there is a cisgender, white, straight, married, with kids, male. Like, oh, how typical. And, well, you know, not not so much. <laughs> Check this book out. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> yeah. On the flip side, 
you've got all these business books and you you're even going with a series. How are you thinking about your book series specifically? And what's been the benefit so far from that? Mm. I, again, I'll go back to the self-fulfilling thing. It, it, it was as much about me staying fresh as mm-hmm. it was about necessarily writing anything about thought right. leaders. I didn't think about it as thought leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought more about having been around long enough to have a point of view, been around long enough to know a bit about what I'm doing. And I've always, and it's funny now, it's it's like a common thing to talk about it, but I've always thought of a brand as being an experience. I'm just always, mm. I think I was taught that at, at J&J. Hence the, the first book, um, The Experience Effect. Like what kind of an experience are you going to create and what kind of effect can you have on your consumers or whoever your stakeholders are? I guess I just got to the point, I'd, I've been writing the book in my head for so long, always wondering if I have enough clout, if people will care, are they going to think I'm being ridiculous? I actually never considered myself a very good writer, to be honest. And I remember taking my son to Cornell for lacrosse camp one summer and stayed an extra night, although he didn't know it, just to make sure he was going to be okay. And I'm walking around campus where I went to college. And I was like, you know what? When I get back home, I'm going to write that book. Like now's the mm. time. And it it just, it flew out of me. It like, it flew out of me. And that's been the case every time. It just flies, wow. it flies out of me. So the series was sort of like all about big brands. And then I, I edited it and revised it to be about small business brands. Like you can apply the same principles, but for small businesses, it does come out a little different. And then I wrote it for personal branding. But this, the whole notion that you are an experience, whether you're a big brand, a small business, or even a person, you're an experience. I love it. So sort of wrap this up, Jim, what is your parting thought for our listeners today? Oh, wow. Take it anywhere you want. Yeah, I firmly believe. And also one of the reasons why I wrote my book about fatherhood. I firmly believe that when you show up at work, when you show up with your friends, with your family, when you show up for yourself in the world, you need to be who you are. You need to be who you are, not what someone else tells you you are, not through someone else's lens or judgment or bias, but who you are. And the better you show up as who you are, and we'll focus on work for a second, the better work you're going to do and the better teammate you're going to be and the better collaborator you're going to be because you're just comfortable and you're using you're using your skills to their best and you're not hampered down by the what if that and what if that and what if that you're just who you are and people talk about it a lot but i and they talk about it a little bit like as a buzzword you know like be your authentic self okay yeah sure it's a little bit buzzy but actually yeah be your be your authentic <laughs> it's self it's not bad advice yeah be who you yeah. are there's tremendous benefits to it for you and for everybody around you and if you can do that every day or some portion of it every day some days are better than others then um you're going to have chance for a much more fulfilling life mm-hmm. What a positive note to finish this up on. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit.
quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.